Put knowledge to work and grow your business with CIT. From transportation to healthcare to manufacturing, CIT offers commercial lending, leasing, and treasury management services for small and middle market businesses. Learn more at CIT.com. Put knowledge to work. Welcome to Deal of the Week, Bloomberg's audio wander through the world of mergers and acquisitions. I'm Ed Hammond, your host this week, and I'm one of the deal reporters here at Bloomberg. And at least as far as hosting this podcast goes, I'm very much down market. Your regular host, Alex Sherman, is off on paternity leave. His regular fill-in, Jeff McCracken, is sunning himself somewhere in Mexico. So you get me, the third man, so to speak. But fear not. This week's show is packed with treats. Later, we've got an interview with Suzanne Greenfield, Director of Corporate Development at Priceline, which Jeff cleverly recorded before jetting out to Mexico. We've also got more jingles, messages from our sponsors, and even an outro from me to look forward to. But before all of that, I'm joined by one of my favorite Bloomberg people, Tara LaChapelle. Now, Tara used to be part of the deals team with me and Jeff and Alex. But since last year, Tara has moved on to Bloomberg Gadfly, which is very much the sort of crucible of the company's original thought movement. Fortunately for us, she still gets to write a lot about deals and she gets more space, a picture byline, and even to pen her wisdom in the comfort of Gadfly's sixth floor thought palace. Now, Tara, how is life upstairs? It's great. I'm loving it. How does it differ? I always wonder how it differs from us, like, you know, minions down on the fifth floor. Well, we have a lot of fun. We get to do more analysis and insert a little bit of opinion and, you know, heavily researched, well-reported opinion. We're not worried about breaking news. We're taking what you guys are breaking and we're analyzing it for readers. That sounds like a sort of welcome relief. Okay, so look, <laughs> I, I want to pick up on something Jeff and I talked about last week, which is this takeover battle in the hotel industry. Um, so obviously, when we did this show last week, China's Anbang Insurance Group had just come over the top with an offer for Starwood Hotels. Starwood is the owner of hotels like the W, the Western, the St. Regis, uh, and it had already agreed itself at that point to sell itself to Marriott. Anbang's offer value Starwood at about $13 billion, and it looked to a lot of us, and I have to include myself in, in this sort of mix, uh, as being the kind of knockout bid, and we, we weren't sure Marriott would be able to come back to the table. But Marriott surprised us all and did come back to the table with a slightly more valuable bid than Anbang's bid. And probably unsurprisingly, Starwood have deemed that latest Marriott bid to be a superior bid to Anban's bid. So now the ball is back in Anban's court. And the expectation is very much that they will come back. Obviously, there is, you know, they still have room to go. Their bid was all cash. We think they have access to more capital. So it's very likely that they will come back with a counter bid. Now, Tara has written already about this deal. Specifically, you can find the stories on our website. And she even found a very polite way of saying that Anban may not be that financially disciplined. I think the exact quote was, the Chinese suitor isn't all that price sensitive. <laughs> um, but look, I want to use this deal more as a sort of way to teleport us into a more universal discussion about inbound Chinese interest in American and European assets. And obviously, there is a trend going on here. I think of the four largest deals this year, two have involved Chinese suitors. Um, and it's, you know, it's across sectors. We've seen it, obviously, in the hotel space. We've seen it in crane makers. We've seen it in chemical crop makers. And I really want to get to the bottom of what's going on here. So, Tara, one thing that seems to tie a lot of these deals together is the Chinese suitors are interlopers. They're coming into deals that are kind of already announced or that are already known about. And they're trying to kind of be the home wrecker and bust up someone's deal by coming in with a high bid. Why do you think that's happening? 
Well, I think there's two really smart reasons for that. One is, you know, someone else is doing the due diligence. You know, these deals were already agreed upon. The companies are already in play. You know what it's worth. They're very good businesses that we're talking about, very big U.S. companies, European companies. And so it's it's all public by that point. And you can kind of see how the deal is playing out, how it's been received by the market. And by that point, it makes it very easy for an outside suitor that maybe wouldn't have gotten such a warm welcome by one of these targets, it's a little bit easier for them to step in and try to do this deal. And then the second reason is simply that, that these companies, you know, Starwood Hotels was already in play. So it's not like you had on big insurance come in and put Starwood in play. The company was already getting bought. It makes it a little bit easier for these guys to step in and try to do a deal like this as opposed to coming in cold and trying to do just a a one-off Chinese to US deal. Do you think there's a fear and and perhaps even a legitimate fear among Chinese buyers if they do come in and, and as you say, before these companies are in play, kind of come in cold and put them into play, that they will be rejected or more likely rejected just because they are Chinese buyers? Absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of uh, national interests at hand. Um, We haven't really heard much from the regulators. The regulatory body is uh, CFIUS. And it's really hard to guess what they're going to decide on a lot of these deals. It's it's never been easy to guess what they're going to do. But we know that lawmakers have been responding, specifically the House Armed Services Committee, Committee, which um, a top Democrat has already spoken out against the um, Affymetrics bid mm-hmm. by our Origin Technologies that has a, a Chinese uh, suitors involved. And then uh, we had some Republicans from that same committee speak out against the um, Zoom Lion bid for Terex. So mm-hmm. we're already seeing the politicians come into the picture and try to put pressure on CFIUS, which is part of the Treasury Department, to tell them to really scrutinize these deals. And a lot of it has to do with these companies have contracts with federal agencies, such as the Defense Department. So there's a national security. And then there's also just the nationalism aspect of it is having a lot of our big companies owned by Chinese ones. It, it's it's a weird thought to a lot of American politicians, especially. Yeah. And I suppose it makes for a lot of political capital in an election cycle. Um, another thing, obviously, about these deals is, you know, the regulatory risk is a big component and something that, you know, will be talked about, I'm sure, for a long time to come. But there is also this question about the strategic rationale of some of these things. Do you think we can apply the same sort of logic to a Chinese buyer as we would to a domestic US company, you know, such as Marriott trying to buy Starwood? Can we say the same things about Angbang makes sense? Probably not in, in these cases because we're seeing these buyers are not, you know, Anbang is not a Chinese hotel company buying a US hotel company. It's a Chinese insurance company doing this. So it's just very hard to guess, you know, what, what their motives are, what they see for this, why why they're doing this from a strategic standpoint. The financial uh, reasons are, are pretty clear. There's a lot of things going on in the Chinese economy that are driving these deals, you know, economic growth is slowing. There's concerns about a further devaluation of their currency. So the U.S. looks like a very attractive market, as does parts of Europe. But when it comes to the strategic rationale, it's not so clear why these conglomerates are going after these specific companies, which makes it so much harder for the observers in these deals, the investors and the merger arbitrage traders to guess what their next steps are going to be, because we, we really just don't know what their thinking is. Yeah, well, it's very horrible. If they're making life hard for the merger arbitrage traders, <laughs> then we should, we should definitely not like them. Um, so, so look, I suppose a broader question is, why do you think now, at this particular point in the cycle, we're seeing so many Chinese companies trying to come in to the, to the M&A market? Because obviously, the M&A market has been going gangbusters for almost two years now. There's been a lot of opportunity to come in and interlope a lot of deals or put a lot of things into play that potentially would want to be put into play. So why now? Why are we seeing this huge rush of, of sort of Chinese interest now? 
I think it's it's sort of a perfect time considering that the the big part of the merger wave has sort of ended. So a lot of companies still in place still have this selling mentality, but stocks are down a little bit and you have all these things going on in China specifically. So there's a lot of reasons for them to deploy capital in the US now where it's all sort of coming together perfectly for them to do these deals. And not to mention there's still a lot of deals going on. I mean the merger wave hasn't ended yet, so there's a lot of even American and European companies that are looking to do big mergers. So why wouldn't you know the Chinese company step in now and also take part in it? And we sort of briefly touched upon this in, in terms of sort of what the regulators can do. But I mean, realistically, what tools do they have at their disposal? What can CFIUS do to block something like the acquisition of a hotel, which wouldn't necessarily seem to, or a group of hotels, which wouldn't necessarily seem to present a sort of national strategic interest defense? That's what makes it so hard to guess. Um, we cannot figure out, you know, which way CFIUS is going to go on a lot of these things. If it's a something where, you know, it's directly tied to government defense contracts, it's pretty clear which way they're going to go and that there's going to be concerns. But yeah, with hotels, I mean, we just don't know. Why, why would they stop that? And what some people have said is, you know, Anbang bought uh, or is buying strategic hotels from Blackstone. Um, they bought the Waldorf Astoria last year. Those went through, you know, no problem. Could Starwood, something as big as that with as many assets as that, trigger now a review from CFIUS? Maybe this is sort of the final straw where they say, wait a minute, you're buying all of our properties. At the same time, Starwood is an international company. They don't get all of the revenue from the U.S., so it's hard to see if CFIUS did try to block it, what would be their rationale for doing so? Okay, so now lastly on this, this isn't the first time we've seen a lot of Asian capital come into um, US or European stocks, and particularly into real estate assets. Um, obviously, Japan was a huge buyer of real estate in the 1980s and early 1990s. Um, what, if any, comparisons can we draw between you know that wave of, of inbound interest and this, this latest wave? Yeah, I've got a lot of questions about this. I mean, everyone remembers uh, Japan buying a lot of our trophy real estate assets back in the 80s and 90s, and those did not end well at yeah. all. Those assets were all sold for fractions of the price that they paid, um, Pebble Beach, Rockefeller Center, things like that. I don't think that it's very similar. I think it's hard to draw comparisons other than their also an Asian nation. Beyond that, it's hard to see the similarities. When that was going on, these were all real estate assets, um, very hard to peg their value, and these companies definitely overpaid. With these Chinese outbound deals, they're buying very solid businesses, very stable um, businesses that were already in play by other companies, so there's obviously a value there to acquirers. And yes, the price may be questionable. We don't know how far these companies can stretch their balance sheets. Companies like ZoomLine, um, Bang, we really don't know. But at the same time, it doesn't seem like it's it's very you know you could put it on the same scale as what we saw with Japan. Yeah, and it's I guess this kind of neatly brings us back to the beginning of the conversation. Someone else has almost accredited the value of a lot of these companies or assets by putting them into play first. Absolutely, it makes it a little bit of a safer bet. You know that these someone else saw the value here, and now maybe you have a little bit of extra cash that you can afford to top them just enough. We don't know how far they're going to push these bidding wars, and I, I doubt it would go too much further before they say, you know what, this is too much. Let's walk away. Excellent. Tara, thank you very much. I miss our time on the desk together. Me too. Thank you for having me. So now we're going to move on to the next segment of the show, which is the interview Jeff McCracken pre-recorded with Suzanne Greenfield, who is the Director of Corporate Development at Priceline. But first, we're going to have a message from our sponsors. Put knowledge to work and grow your business with CIT. From transportation to healthcare to manufacturing, CIT offers commercial lending, leasing, and treasury management services for small and middle market businesses. Learn more at CIT.com. Put knowledge to work. 
Welcome back to Deal of the Week. I am Jeffrey McCracken, Bloomberg's Managing Editor on Global Deals Coverage. In the past, our podcast has had guests who have negotiated deals, financed deals, uh, argued about them in the legal side, flacked deals, and, and written about deals. Today, we're actually lucky to have someone who has been inside a company at a senior level analyzing the deals and and helping buy another company or buying another large, complicated asset. We are pleased to have Suzanne Greenfield, and she is Director of Corporate Development at the Priceline Group, the online travel agency that has grown into a $65 billion market cap company. Anyone who owns a TV or travels or has gone out to eat or, well, frankly, is alive, they're aware of Priceline. Among the deals Suzanne has worked on in her two years at Priceline would include the acquisition of AS Digital, which was an Australian online restaurant booking service. And before that, one of their bigger deals was a $2.6 billion acquisition of Open Table, which is one of my most used sites when I'm scrambling to book lunch here in New York City. Welcome, Suzanne. Thank you. So what is the, the job of a, a corporate development executive like at a, at a publicly traded company such as Priceline? You know, what is the day-to-day Uh, What are the day-to-day duties, if you will? Yeah. So, for the most part, our job is to keep track of and speak to as many companies as possible within our industry. So, from day-to-day, I'm speaking to all kinds of companies. Since we both do venture investing and we do M&A, I'm talking to scrappy startups or I'm talking to very sophisticated companies that are in many different countries. And since we're so global, it's it's all across the world. So, it could be a company in Asia or Europe or anywhere else in the in the world. And what we're basically doing is is trying to to find things that that make sense that in areas that our business can't or otherwise grow organically, we're looking for for those types of companies. How many companies are you typically looking at, either as investments or as targets that you may buy? Uh, within a year, or just at a given point in time, you know, or you you, know, you go back to your desk and you look, and you've got ten companies you're looking at, or right. five. I'm just kind of curious. Yeah, I think it's always a funnel. As, as it is probably with, with most people in corp dev or private equity. So probably in, in, in any period, there's probably at least five to ten companies that are that you're doing something with. But most are just a, a one-hour conversation where you're, you're getting to know who they are or, or a coffee or a meeting. There's only a, a handful that are, are more actionable where you're actually performing due diligence and, and maybe trying to move down a process. And then of those, only a, a handful actually get done. When you're making investments, is is it are you doing that because you think down the road you might want to buy the company outright? Is that how it often works out, or do you typically just you make an investment and you just leave it there and let the let the company grow on its own? Yeah, we never make an investment making an assumption of an acquisition. If if we should make an acquisition, we'll make an acquisition. Mm-hmm. We make investments for a number of reasons. Sometimes it's for for different learnings because we want to learn about a company. Sometimes it's because we're not sure. We're trying to figure out our strategic direction a little bit, and we're not sure, but we want to we want to learn about a new area. We did an investment in a company in the the sharing economy this year, and that was really because we want to explore that that industry better, but but we're not yet sure that we want to do an acquisition. The sharing economy, that's companies like the Airbnbs, if you will? Yeah. What are the metrics? Are there key metrics that you're looking at when when Priceline's considering an acquisition? Or is it more about the the industry or the space where you feel like, you know what, it's going to take too long to try to replicate this company, so better to buy them? Is it about the the numbers or is it about, the like I said, the, the space that you're not in? 
It's both. It's both. It, and it really depends. <laughs> if When we're doing acquisitions, we're really thinking about, again, finding areas, whether it's an, a geography we're not currently in that it'd be hard to grow in organically or a new capability or new channels. That's usually what we're thinking about. Ideally, I mean, you want the company to, you have, the company has to make sense financially. It has to fit in with what we do. But depending on how it fits in strategically, those metrics could vary. So like with Open Table, what did it bring? That was a really big acquisition, got a yeah. lot of ink when it was announced, I believe, in 2014. That's right. And actually, there was some criticism. People thought maybe you overpaid or paid too much of a premium for Open for right. OpenTable. You, right. you know, I'm not the first one to, to right. mention that. I'm sure you heard it from investors. But what, what did uh, what did you get from OpenTable? Yeah. So, for, on its own, OpenTable is, is a fantastic company. It has a, a great brand. You were just saying in the beginning that, that you use it as well. It is a uh, phenomenal service, in, right. in my humble opinion. Yeah. A phenomenal service, a great product. And... What we can bring, what we can bring to it, is we're a, a global e-commerce company, and we have a lot of experience internationalizing companies. So, so that's what we can bring to it. How it fits into the the bigger picture is while most of our companies right now are more focused in the the travel area, when we we, we do a lot of work thinking about our, our long-term strategy too, as as most big companies do, and our long-term mission is helping people experience the world. So, long-term. Uh, we don't want it to just be via travel. We want it to be also helping you find places to eat and helping you find things to do. So Open Table really fits in with as we kind of expand our vision and, and what we want to be. When you're looking at companies, you're considering acquisitions. How, how many times is that something you were already or the company was already considering? And how many times is that something a banker brought to you? I would assume you know most companies that would make sense to to acquire, but I assume banks are also pitching frequently on these are potential targets or potential uh, potential things to buy. Yeah, I'd say it's both. I, I mean, I think as most. I think investors or corp dev or private people like we don't really like to be in banker processes. They're they're more competitive. It makes it more challenging. So ideally, for the most part, we're really trying to get to know companies at a, a very early point, even before they're ready for an acquisition. Either because we want to do an investment or we can do a partnership with them. By the point we're doing an acquisition, we have liked to have known a company for a year or two and to really have gotten to know their management to see that they can execute on their plan and to see that they fit in with our. Core with Open Table, were they running a process? I don't recall that one specifically. Were they running a process, or is that something you initiated? Do you remember how that one came together? Um, with Open Table, they were considering strategic alternatives. Okay, okay. And that's often what we pick up on as as reporters. We will often hear of companies. They'll have a b- bunch of interviews with banks, and then they'll pick a bank to run a process, and that's often where it gets out where it leaks, if you will. But but we had we had been looking at open table and known open table for a number of years. Yeah, so course, it wasn't it, we weren't looking at something we were looking at something because it's interesting and it made a lot of sense for us. Is there any particular deal you've worked on that that was the most interesting or was the hardest to, to, to get done? The most interesting I think as digital the one that we just did for open table was pretty interesting. That's it's, the Australian that's the Australian one. It was a, an example of us really executing on the the plan for internationalizing Open Table or, or helping them get there, we were able to buy that company and it had a great base and it, it executed just as well as Open Table, but but in Australia and taking those two businesses and combining them uh, has been really strong and we've had a lot of learnings from their business that we've brought to Open Table and vice versa. We've been able to bring Open Table some of Open Table's technology and learnings to to the Australian market. What are the things that trip up? 
acquisitions that we in the media or generally the public would not ever realize are, are issues? Is it, is it social issues of so the CEOs don't get along or is it really more just about price? I'm just curious, what are the, the hurdles that we wouldn't often know or we wouldn't often see from the outside? I think sometimes egos can get in the way uh, for private deals, especially if it's privately owned or family owned or entrepreneur owned. Mm-hmm. If someone's been working on a business for their whole life or, or been building it or, or blood, sweat and tears, uh, it can come. Sometimes it, it, it's not just business. It becomes personal and that can really trip up a business. Yeah. Or chip up a deal. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, the social issues we often find out afterwards are the reason deals don't get done or why deals, you know, they have to wait a year or so for someone to retire. Right. So you have maybe someone else who's more amenable to, to getting it done. Exactly. You know, as a woman, do you find yourself often in, in these deals or in these uh, settings where you're the only one or has it become more diverse in the last couple of years? I, you know, as a reporter, unfortunately, 99% of the people we talk to are male. Right. Um, so do you sense that or do you feel that? I think there's some increasing diversity. I, I will say that I also oftentimes am in meetings and I could be the only woman in the room. But I, I don't really see that as a negative. I, I see that as a positive. It's a way, a way to stand out. Uh, it's a way to be recognized. And I think sometimes it's, especially within our company, they're looking to always increase diversity, mm-hmm. um, especially at the senior level. So it's a way, actually, when you're a woman and you're performing really well, it's a way of maybe even promoting. Would you ever envision going back to the M&A banker world, or do you prefer being in the corporate side of things? Oh, no. Definitely buy side is way better. Is it? <laughs> actually, yeah, you're actually spending time looking at the businesses and talking to the management teams and thinking about it. And even compared to private equity, which I also worked in private equity, which we didn't really get into, it's way better because you're actually thinking about the strategy. You're not thinking, how am I going to sell this in four or five years? You're thinking, well, I'm going to buy this and I'm going to either incorporate it to one of my businesses or it's going to stand as this new leg and it's going to build into something great. And I'm going to work with this management team and really build it to something beautiful. So that's a fantastic feeling. And then you work on the integration when you acquire something like a, a NAS or a, a yes. Open Table, um, or I'm involved with integrations as well. Explain integration because I think from the outside we just assume that means okay, we got to get rid of people. We got to cut heads. <laughs> I assume it's slightly more complicated than that. Yes, yes. Integration is not necessarily a bad word. Integration it depends on on how the company is getting integrated. So, from the case of As Digital, they were actually getting integrated into Open Table, so it was quite a deep integration. For something else like Rocket Miles, which I also worked on, they were actually staying independent within our ventures arm, and so the integration is lighter. But there's still everything from compliance to getting all the emails in the email system. These are very basic things. Email system to all the other things that it comes to being part of a business. And then with something like As Digital, which is a much more detailed integration, it's actually integrating your customer service phone numbers. It's having your technologies talk to each other. It's, it's you know, so having, so that we can have Australian restaurants, uh, we have an API that actually speaks to open table systems. So you can look at the Australian restaurants from As Digital on open table. So it's a lot of technological integration. And it's kind of thinking about all those pieces and when each has to happen so that you can launch a product or modify a business. So you've got Australia and obviously you've got the United States. Is there some is there a European element that either you've acquired or you it would make sense to acquire down the road? 
Uh, well, our biggest business uh, is Booking.com, and okay. they're and they're based in Amsterdam. Um, and we've done a number of different transactions in in Europe. Last year, we bought a company called Price Match. Uh, it's out of Paris, and it's it's a, actually a B two B SaaS business. So we've actually been growing our B two B SaaS arm. And what that does is it basically helps hotels price their rooms using very complex algorithms and lots of different data. Okay. Okay. Where does someone who's in corporate development, where do they go from here? Do you stay in corporate development? Do you, what, what's the career yeah. moves for people yeah. in, in, in the development place? Yeah, absolutely. I, I've seen a lot of different things, so and I, I don't really know where my career will take me, but I've seen people in corp dev stay in corp dev and, and just become more senior. I've seen people in corp dev actually go and run or, or help run one of the, the companies that they acquired, especially some of the smaller ones. So you could take a more of a management type role. Right, so some internal move to the... The asset that you just bought exactly you know? exactly and then and then from there maybe you become even more senior in management of the company if you're performing well my last question is you've worked on smaller deals you've worked on larger deals are the larger deals harder to do do they create more tension because of the dollars that are involved or are actually does the size of it really not impact your ability or your your nervousness if you will of trying to get it across the the, the goal line it's funny. It doesn't really matter how large a company is. You still have to do all the same work. And in fact, sometimes larger companies are, are more sophisticated. They could have audits, or if they're public, then they're you know they're they actually report to the SEC. So so their financials can actually be a lot cleaner. Um, so sometimes it actually could be even more complex to do a smaller deal. Also, with as we talked about with smaller deals, you can have founders or people who are who are very ingrained in the business and and take it a lot more personally. Definitely, though, with a, with a larger deal, the bigger thing is you got to get it, or you, you want to get it right, right? Because it's a bigger dollar amount. Whereas with the smaller deal, you still want to get it right, and you're still only going to do it if you think you're going to get it right, but you're probably not taking on as much risk for the business. Got it. Got it. Well, I think that's all the time we've got. Okay, Appreciate great. it. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. We'll look forward to the next Priceline deal, which <laughs> I'm sure will be coming soon. Sounds good. So that takes us to the end of another edition of Deal of the Week. Join us again next week when we'll be back discussing the biggest trends and the biggest deals in the M&A market. Special thanks to Tara LaChapelle for joining me today and to everyone else who took part in this show. Find us at Tara Lash and at Ed Hammond NY on Twitter. Thanks again for listening. See you next week. Put knowledge to work and grow your business with CIT. From transportation to healthcare to manufacturing, CIT offers commercial lending, leasing, and treasury management services for small and middle market businesses. Learn more at CIT.com. Put knowledge to work.